I'm glad to be with you this morning, and I think we should begin in prayer. Father, we thank you that though we are weak, you are strong, and that we are your children, and that the Lord Jesus is the light of the world. Help us to be your children in practice, hour by hour and day by day, both privately and publicly. We thank you that we have such a hope in him, the hope of eternal life, which we now have in our hearts, but also that eternal life which goes on into eternity, at which time we will be able to see our Savior's face and we shall see him and we shall be like him. We thank you for our hope in him this morning and pray that your word would live for us. In his name we pray, amen. <clears throat> this is part three of my series on the Ten Commandments. I felt that the way in which society is going is very much on a path of undermined values, past tense. A great deal of our understanding of what is right and wrong has been already seriously undermined, as I'm sure you well know. And the process continues. We don't see um, the darkness abating. We see the darkness becoming darker. And that just means, as someone reminded me in an email yesterday, that the light is more obviously light because it is such a strong contrast to the darkness. But it is good, I think, to be reminded of our values and our, um, what I like to call last time, our axiomatic beliefs, which can be tied to the Ten Commandments. Taking as axiomatic personhood, which I talked about last time, the ultimate person with a capital P is God himself, and he breathed life into the first man. Didn't do that with angels. Did that with humans. So our personhood, we are created in the image of God, is a derived personhood. God's personhood is not derived. He is the ultimate, original person who is dependent on no one and nothing. So our entities as human beings, we need to understand, are created and have a person that God values and that God loves. That's one of the integral, fundamental assumptions or presuppositions upon which uh, the Ten Commandments and the Law and the Bible and the teachings of Jesus Christ are built upon. Personal bodily integrity and autonomy. The Ten Commandments really don't have much intellectual coherence, logical coherence, if you and I are somehow the same thing. Warren is Warren, and I am me. Warren takes care of himself. He is responsible for taking care of himself. I take care of myself. God holds me accountable for how I take care of myself. Corporeal, that is the adjective of body, corporeal integrity and autonomy. Without that, it's very difficult to understand how anybody can be responsible for sinning. You are a soul, and you have a spirit, and you live in a body, and you can do right things and wrong things. How to hold you accountable if you are neither a person nor have personal autonomy, bodily integrity. Fourthly, the idea of set-apartness Hagiazo in the New Testament, the concept of set-apartness, the idea of uh, holiness is 
based upon sanctities. And <clears throat> what is holy, what is right, is partly, as you read the initial chapters of Romans, a common grace of God that people understand right from wrong to some extent as a common grace of God. But for the Christian, the revelation in the Bible of what is holiness, what is the basis for holiness, how is it defined, these things are revealed. Uh, a well-known Christian apologist was invited to a meeting in California, <clears throat> and he got there, and he noted that no one else in that conference or in that room was a Christian, and he said, why did you invite me? The answer from the organizer of the meeting, we said, we wanted to invite and have the token transcendentalist. So the, the term transcendentalist means that there is an aspect of revealed truth that we would not have had God not revealed it to us. God is other. God has revealed his truth to us. He is transcendent. And that is the way in which God's um, righteousness, holiness, and principles have come to us in detail. They have come from him, and he is holy. In connection with the idea of holiness, you have the uh, idea, the Judeo-Christian idea, that God is glorious. He is glorious inherently, and part of that glory is his holiness. And if he is glorious, then he is worthy of worship. Well, what is worship? It is showing honor. Last time I reminded you of John 4.24, where the Lord Jesus said to honor me and to worship me is what is necessary. John 4.24 indicates that however we may think of honoring God, that is how we should and must honor Jesus Christ. Well, if worship is the highest form of honor, and the Lord Jesus is worthy of that level of honoring and of worship, then he is fully God. He is fully divine because he is worthy of true worship. Honor and respect then, you might say, trickle down, and the idea of respect and honor permeates into things like honor your parents, That is something clearly that is an honorable thing to do, and it is uh, necessary to have a concept of honor and respect in the context of this uh, idea of behavioral law, the ideas of responsibility, accountability. It is necessary to have uh, a concept that there are honorable things there are holy things, and there are dishonorable things that God, shall we say, doesn't like. And that is an understatement. Things that are unholy and dishonorable are the exact opposite of the brightness of the glory of God. And yet, the human being outside of Christ finds himself in that kind of situation of not naturally loving God 
not naturally worshiping God. So these are fundamental ideas, and with them, with these presuppositions, the Ten Commandments can be, and the law can be, uh, found to be coherent. And we had the various key words that I uh, wanted to give you in order to uh, help you to remember these commandments. And some of them are Godward, as you saw last time, and some of them are toward others. And we have a discussion of the semi-paradoxical situation where God emphasizes that the nearness of the truth uh, is a good thing and that is something that uh, makes us more responsible. On the other hand, as it says there, the word is very near you. God's truth is very near you. On the other hand, we find that due to our unholiness, God and his law, in a sense, are very far from us and we are very unable to uh, execute it in a holy and perfect way. The, as I was sharing with you before, we have the mention three times in the New Testament of the fact that it was mediated by thousands of angels, three times in the New Testament. And that then means that there is a, at that time, a place of deposition, and that then there is a legal disposition of the law. I like the thought that um, the Ten Commandments being ten were five on that one and five on this one, written by the very finger of God, but under covenant relationships. It was standard that if I, as a king, enter into a relationship with a vassal state, that must serve me, the way that it would be done in the ancient Middle East is you get a copy and I get a copy. Any questions? Here's the contract. You have your copy of the contract. This is almost like standard business procedure. You have your standard contract. You have it, I have it, we have a copy. What's there to talk about? It, 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 it's clear, it's clear. The nature of this covenant is clear. <clears throat> and so it emphasizes that aspect of responsibility, but you have the beautiful picture here that it is under the mercy seat and that God's copy is right beside my copy in a place of mercy. There are various perspectives as I have alluded to. For example, if I think of myself in the center, the Ten Commandments look uh, at three, in three directions, toward God, toward my immediate family, and toward, in single quotes, my neighbors. In some places, that would be the alien. The, the, the word alien is literally used for someone who might wander in from Midian and say, I am having a terrible time in my home country. I want to live with you and be with you. And the scriptures are very clear, the law is very clear, that that alien from that foreign country must be treated with the same kind of care and respect that any Jew would be treated with. I had the arrows going one way, now I have the arrows going both ways because this is not a cold as ice kind of contract. These are relationships, 
God desires to be in a relationship with you. He desires that your relationships with your family and your neighbors reflect your relationship with him. In terms of priorities, if we don't get our priorities right, then things tend to fall apart. We need a relationship with God. That will then empower us to have a proper, good Christian relationship with our own family and having a family which together belongs to God and worships Jehovah, we will then be able to minister to others and have a proper relationship with neighbors. But it also then, especially in the Torah, implies responsibilities. What are your responsibilities toward God? What are your responsibilities toward your family? What are your responsibilities toward your neighbors? So as we go through the Ten Commandments uh, today, you can keep in the back of your mind the, uh, the three arrows and their, the directions of the arrowheads. The <clears throat> sanctities, I made reference to the idea of holiness, sanctity, set-apartness. Under the Ten Commandments, it's quite interesting that it covers more than just property, the sanctity of you in relation to me, the sanctity of you as a person, is built into the Ten Commandments. If I'm wasting your time, I am not treating your time with proper respect. If I borrow your property and ruin it, that is not treating your property with proper respect. So dealing with these various areas of, of life can be thought of as areas of sanctity. As I said before, we, we need to keep things in order. God, parents, neighbors. There's also duality in the Ten Commandments. There are things which are of an inner man nature. And the New Testament, for example, Galatians uh, 5 and 6 and the closing chapters of Ephesians have to do with one's inner life. And <clears throat> within the Ten Commandments, you are given information on things like worship, which is something that goes on inside of you as you uh, worship God. People might be able to tell that you're worshiping God, or they might not. Something else that goes on inside of you is the Tenth Commandment. Worship is the first one. Envy is the tenth one. That is also something that is not necessarily evident that goes on inside of me. So I have an inner life I, as a person, have an inner life, and the Ten Commandments also deal with the outer life. If you tell a lie, you've said something, and it's false, I, I hope that you are found out. If I, tell some, if I say something that's false, I hope it's found out. We don't want to lie, and we don't want lies to be propagated. Lie is something that you can hear with your ears, Theft is an example of an outer thing, taking someone's property which does not belong to you. <clears throat> so these uh, are ways of, of looking at it. And so I'm going to go this morning. Um, I wasn't sure when I started two messages ago how long it would take to actually get to the Ten Commandments themselves, but here they are. Why did it take so long to get to the Ten Commandments. 
First of all, we have, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The exposition of this is actually found in the next chapter, that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart. The first commandment is speaking of the uniqueness of God, that there will be no other gods before us. The subject of worship is a very uh, important subject, especially in a day when people often think, well, I go to church today. Um, not feeling like it. I, I think I'm going to stay home. I feel a bit low. Um, that kind of thinking uh, is, is, is very f sort of logically faulty. The fundamental experience of worship is that worship is a joy. Worship will lift you up. Are you not feeling the greatest emotionally? Don't stay home. Come and worship. What is going on inside of you in a church service, one might say, is nobody's business. It is between you and God. But the joy of worship, focusing on God and not on your emotional problems, is one of the great things about being a child of God, about being a Christian. One might ask, if I actually am cold, I think about the idea, the instruction of Deuteronomy 6.5, love God. I think about the idea of worshiping God. And I look to my own heart and I find a piece of stone. I find a piece of ice. The response should not be, oh well, I guess that's the way I am and there's nothing to be done about it. That is very wrong thinking. If someone is, let's say, chronically in that frame of mind, that they say, I never actually feel anything toward God, and I never have, and I have no interest in my heart changing, I would say, I don't think you're a believer. I think you should ask yourself why it is that your heart is like a cold stone toward God. The first step in coming to God may be, I need to admit it. I need to go before God and say, this is how horrible I am. You created me, you gave me life, and I feel nothing toward you, I feel no inclination toward you. Is that so? You may well be in a very serious state where you need to come before God and admit that. Admit to God that you need serious help. It may, need, it may be, it may well be, that you need to be saved. The reason your heart is cold toward God is that you do not enjoy salvation. If you do enjoy salvation, then worship should be part of your life. An elder a couple of weeks ago made the comment that too often, people turn away from the exact thing that they need. People who are going through periods perhaps of grief or disappointment, and it is not uncommon, you would not be surprised to hear me say this, it is not uncommon for people to, who, who are having a period of grief or disappointment, they stop coming to church. Well, that's exactly the wrong decision. 
The Lord can lift you up. Worship is what you need to be doing. And if the start of your prayer is, Lord, my heart is cold, so be it. Face it. Admit it. Is that outside of God's reach? Can God's finger not touch you? Is that how far gone you think you are? Well, I think you're actually very self-centered and perhaps narcissistic if you think, you know, I'm such a rotten, miserable, disgusting, yeah, sure, that God and me, there's no ground. I'll never be able to worship. That person is deciding that God cannot do something that God can do. He, yes, he can. He can reach down and touch the most miserable, grief-stricken heart and lift up that heart. Other people don't need to know exactly what's going on. That's between you and God. But worship is the privilege and blessing of the child of God. Our focus can be very inward. If you continue to focus and look inward, I don't know how you can look upward. I don't know how you can enjoy, shall I say, the face of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God, if you won't look, if you won't look up, and you won't make any time to look up, and you won't put one foot in front of another to go to a place where people are singing and worshiping. I don't like to minimize other people's griefs or losses or any such thing, but I think of the example of Job. You know, you think of, um, let's get to that, grief and loss. What did this man say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the midst of his loss and grief, he said, though he, he, he slay me, God, he can kill me, I will trust him. A man who lost everything. That's quite a, an amazing example, isn't it? We all have experiences of grief and loss. Um, I know that as I have retired and people that are older than me are getting up in their 80s, people who were sort of a little bit middle-aged middle adults to my, me being in my 20s and early 30s, those same people are hitting up into their 80s. And I've been thinking about how far away am I from that? Well, about 14 years, I'll be 80, according to that arithmetic. What am I going to do with the next 14 years? Am I going to look inward, or am I going to worship God? And am, I, am I going to enjoy God, regardless of the circumstances? My health may well change. I thank the Lord I have good health. Could that change? Of course it could change. And so... As you look around and you see people with health problems and as you get older and you see that the frequency of those health problems get greater and that here and there, this one's passing away. That one's gone. This one's gone. Both sets of parents are gone. It makes you think. It makes you think about the purpose of your life. Um, the uniqueness of God 
can be perhaps graphically portrayed. I, thou shalt have no other gods before me, not ahead of me, not beside me, none, none. Well, what about if I put the other stuff in its place, and I'm pretty sure I've got the true God at the top of the pyramid, and there's other stuff and things that really have my heart, but they're below? Shouldn't that be okay? No. <clears throat> and we come to idolatry, and of course there can be modern interpretations of idolatry, doesn't have to be a piece of wood carved in the image of something, although these things do exist, both in Canada and in the rest of the world. And <clears throat> there are dangers with such things. It's very clear in the scriptures, verse 1 and 2 are trying to say, should you think that making a representation of the true God to help you worship the true God is okay, it's not okay. This is it. That's the whole picture. Only God, nothing else, nothing else. We read here of the uh, visitation of, in some sense, of the iniquities of the practice of idolatry upon the children. I like to think about God's universe as having um, optional physical laws, but that God's holiness would be the same holiness if he created an entirely different universe with an entirely different race of beings as created beings. His holiness would still be his holiness. Whether or not there's still a Higgs boson in some alternate creation, God God doesn't have to use that. God doesn't have to do that. He can create a physical universe according to his own will and his own design. But the morality, the righteousness, the holiness, these are characteristics of God himself. They never change. They would be the same with a different creation. One of the rules, you might say, that is built into the morality part of this universe that God has created is that the sins of the fathers end up being an unwanted visitor in the homes of the children. The children look at the example of the father and they say, oh, so I guess that's okay. And they go and they do the same thing. And then the consequences of that sin visits that home just as it was present in the home of the parents. And so it propagates even to the fourth generation. The um, role of the spirit of, the, of man in terms of its, his, yours and mine, our fidelity to God, our, our honesty, our devotion, our worship to God, our fidelity to God, has been compared in your Bible to a marriage relationship. The opposite, where we want to say, well, you know, I, I'm a Christian and 
or I'm a Jew and I have a relationship with God, I'm a child of God, and then the heart is not there. That is where things went. The book of Hosea is within the 12 minor prophets and comes 1,300 years or so later from uh, Moses giving the law. And what had, what, how had things evolved? How had things changed? Within the hearts of the people, there was not the devotion to God anymore. One translation calls it the spirit of infidelity. You understand fidelity in marriage. The whole book of Hosea is built around the idea of fidelity in marriage as a metaphor of fidelity of the child of God to God. And how things evolved over those uh, 1800 years, uh, let's see, uh, 1800 BC to 600 BC, so I'm not doing my arithmetic very well, uh, 1200 years, how things evolved over those 1,200 years was that the children of God, the earthly children of God, developed hearts that were not unlike a man who visits prostitutes instead of being married and being happily married. The King James Version uses the word whoredom. That, is, that was the order of the day. There is no longer the uniqueness of the relationship of the heart of the children of God with God, their creator and their lawgiver, their holy and glorious God. They had a heart that actually looked laterally all the time and up, never. This is quite an interesting commandment, commandment number three, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. There's a number of um, implications of this. One is to take an oath using God's name. And you have actually no intention of keeping that promise. You invoke the name of God and you say, I will do this, and you do it to impress someone. And you actually have no intention of keeping that promise. Or perhaps it is, it can be, to make an oath invoking the name of God and you casually forget about it. And you get in the habit of invoking the name of God all the time as a way of maybe emphasizing something. And it means nothing. That kind of verbal oath-taking is prohibited by the third commandment. But I alluded last time to taking on the name of God in vain. The word Christian has Christ in it. And when you say, I'm a Christian, you are saying that you are taking on the name of Christ. Are you taking on the name of Christ in a pointless way, in a, in a, in a vain way, in an empty way? That's tragic. If the world looks at you and says, you know, he says he's a Christian, but I, I look at his behavior... And I don't see one iota of Christ. I want nothing to do with that. That would be, sadly, a valid verdict on the part of the unbeliever. So don't. Don't take on the name of Christ upon yourself for no good reason and thoughtlessly, carelessly. If you bear the name of Christ, you should honor 
God with your life. We often uh, think of take the Lord's name in vain as things like using the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as a swear word, which it's hard to escape every single day in uh, Canadian society, and that's perhaps a very common interpretation of the third commandment, but it is actually just, I would say, a relatively minor manifestation of a bad testimony in general, in general. The extreme expression, many of these commandments have, you might say, an extreme expression. Honor your father. It turns out that if you punch your father in the face and you are a Jew in Jewish society, you are executed. The extreme dishonor that you might show to your father is to actually strike him. For the Jewish child of God, the, the penalty for that was death. Similarly, if you are going to speak God's name in an extremely negative way, it is called blasphemy. The penalty for blasphemy, Leviticus 24, is death. The extreme expression or manifestation of not taking God's name seriously. The Lord Jesus um, extended perhaps a form of the third commandment about taking God's name in vain, what we loosely call swearing, and he extended commandment number nine about not lying to the simple fact that I alluded to of keeping your word. You make a promise? Just keep your promise. Let your yes be yes and your no be no and keep your promises. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by God's throne. Don't swear by the temple. Don't swear by anything. Keep your promises. Let yes be yes and no be no. We now come to the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And your New Testament gives you additional information for the age of grace in which we live. One of which is, let no man judge you according to what you eat or what holidays you take or whether you think about the moon in the sky or Sabbaths. Let no man judge you. The Sunday, what we like to call the Lord's Day, is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath is actually under the age of the law. It had a great many things that went along with it. It is a matter of church history that the Christians met as you can read in the book of Acts, on the first day of the week. That is when the Christians met. That was the day of the week that the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. So they did not keep the Jewish Sabbath. They had a day in which they would worship and that they would meet. I want to tell you a little story about a professor that I had at the University of Guelph as an undergraduate, which was uh, from 1977 to 1980. I started at Memorial and I moved over. And I often say that I, I didn't really like the program there at the University of Guelph in the late, uh, late 70s. I went to learn about water resources engineering, and I actually found that the program had less water resources than where I left. So I wasn't happy about that. However, the one good thing that happened was I met my future wife. So that made it worth it. That definitely made it worth it. And one of the professors I had that I greatly respected was, uh, where's Hank, he's a Dutchman. He was born in the Netherlands, he came to Canada as a boy, and 
His name was Lambert Otten, O-T-T-E-N. And Lambert Otten was a, let us say, an outward Christian. He made no bones about the fact that he was a born-again Christian. That's what I am. That's what, everybody knew that. Lambert Otten was a Christian. I wonder whether I have, or had, I'm retired, um, that kind of degree of outward testimony of my Christian faith in my department. My colleagues knew. Some of my students knew. Somehow everybody knew that Lambert Otten was a believer. And he graduated at the top of the University of Waterloo engineering program, number one. And he shared with me, he said, you know, I had, I had one policy. I didn't do a lick of work on Sunday. I took seriously the principle that God wants us to have a day of rest. And as the Lord Jesus said in Mark 2, this, the, 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 the day of rest is for man. Not that we have to be legalistic about it, but the, the day of rest in which we can celebrate the joy, the peace, the rest that is spoken about in the, in the book of Hebrews, that's, that's when you can do that, and that's when you can have a time of corporate worship. And I can tell you, having gone through you know, a few years of university education in engineering departments, especially the undergrad, oh my goodness, that is a tough thing to do, to say that I'm not going to do a lick of work on Sunday. But that was Lambert Otten's policy. I, he was a brilliant man. His courses were tough. I learned more from him than, than any other professor in terms of engineering content. And he didn't do a lick of work on Sundays. And God blessed him so much. I think that's the message. It's not a matter of legalism, but if you understand and observe the principle of rest, joy, and peace as you can find in the New Testament for the believer, then you will enjoy many benefits from having that day of rest. I see that um, my time is gone and um, I think we will have to leave it there. I want to keep faith with the Sunday school teachers and so we can meditate upon these axiomatic principles. These hopefully give us light and strength and clarity in this dark world in which we live. Shall we pray? Father, we pray that you would give us strength. We have been singing that we are weak, but we know that you are strong. We pray that you would give us strength, help us to be salt and light in this dark world, help us to trust you and live out the principles of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.